Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to another edition of Politics and Right on KPFT, your community radio station. Thank you so kindly for being here with us. First of all, our, our fun drive is over, but don't forget, please continue to go to kpft.org and provide support to make sure this station stays alive. I need to thank all the folks that provided great support for us. Kenneth Jenkins, Dan Limbaugh, Claudio Arena, Brian Smith, Bruce Pollard, Valerie Clauser, Anthony Lister, Dan Limbaugh, Mike Franklin, Carla Moore, Vance Goodwin. Thank you so kindly for supporting KPFT. KPFT via Politics Unright. You can listen to Politics Unright on a daily basis because we have a fresh and new program every day at 3 p.m. on the internet. Go ahead and go to politicsunright.com, politicsunright.com. And if you want to subscribe to get a ding uh, whenever we are on air, go ahead and go to politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube, politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube. Please also remember and follow Egberto Willis, Egberto Willis on Twitter as well as on Facebook, Politics Done Right. We do the live program there every single day. Anyhow, we have a great program for you. We have two different kind of environmentalists for you to listen to. You are going to enjoy this show. But before, let's talk a little bit about that electric grid. We all remember the Texas power grill failure during the freeze. We were supposed to, uh, the government 10 years before told us, hey, take care of your problem. Make sure that you winterize all those generators, etc. We did nothing. We deregulated everything. And since we're deregulated and we have our own grid in Texas, electric grid in Texas, we said to hell with what anybody have to say. We do it our way. And of course, the freeze came, froze the grid. When the grid got frozen, we had power failures throughout Texas. Millions of Texans were out of power. And in the process, many got some huge bills, $10,000 bills, because it's a deregulated market, supply and demand, and whoever is willing to pay more for the available electricity, they pay the going price. Well, it turns out, I want you to listen to this, and then we'll take it on the other side. Here's how the discussion went down during the Public Utility Commission meeting, again, just ended a few minutes ago. Listen. We would have to decide that now if we wanted to reprice that. And I, I'm, in, I'm not inclined to do it today because I, for the reasons I said. I think that, you know, there were these prices, it, pe- decisions were made about these prices in real time um, based on information that was available to everybody. Uh, to all market participants, and they did all sorts of things that they wouldn't have done if the prices were different, and it's, it's just nearly impossible to unscramble this sort of egg. Let's go into depth here on how all of this happened. This is the chart of prices for that wholesale power during that week. This was Saturday, mm-hmm. and this was Sunday. When power started to go out, remember it was about here, it was for two days, and then it started to come back online. These prices, as you mentioned, this was about $20. This is ten grand. 
significant difference. So what should have happened was that these prices should have begun to come back down in line with how much power was available. Mm -hmm. It did not do that. So for two full days, ERCOT was overcharging those power customers $16 billion. And of course, now we're hearing that they are going to say, yeah, we're just going to let it stay. The Texas grid is really set up like the stock market. You gamble a little bit on supply and demand. Mm -hmm. In this case, the Public Utility Commission saying, listen, we promised power generators a whole lot of money. And if we reverse it, they're not going to get their money. It's really upsetting, as you say, just maddening, because the increase was immediate. Why wouldn't the decrease be immediate? Right. Now, it's just like the stock market. It's deregulated. And that's the truth. And you know what? The PUC chair was correct. It's crazy to think you can detangle all these different things. And you notice what he said. They were all market participants and it was done fairly. He's right. That is what your unregulated markets look like. And that's why you should not have unregulated markets for power. You should not have unregulated markets for healthcare or any of those things. Because during times of crises, these things happen. You hold people with $10,000 bills and others make a huge profit on because when there's scarcity, there are huge profits for a very few to make. And they take advantage of it. It's legal. It works in the stock market. That is how we decided in Texas. We voted for people in Texas who decided that we were unfettered capitalist marketers. And in the process of doing that, we have several of our citizens with $10,000 bills, $16,000 bills. And then some of the people said, oh, we are going to try to get others to make it whole so that these individuals who have to pay the $10,000 or whatever will be covered by the taxpayers that hold all the taxpayers of the United States because of the stipends that they're asking for. Having all the taxpayers pay the bills is tantamount to a transfer of wealth from all of us to the select few who took advantage of a freeze, who took advantage of a disaster, who took advantage of a failure that they created. So they make the money by not having to make sure that their equipment is winterized since they didn't have to invest in that. They made more profits and they make profits again because they're able to zap the prices wide up. That shouldn't happen. Today we have a special program because people that listen to our show are going to say, you have a petroleum engineer, a agricultural engineer, somebody dealing with oil on your show, to which I say, yes, we must listen to everybody. Greg Coseta is Director of Marketing for Shale Crescent USA, a regional nonprofit research and economic development organization. He is a professional engineer and an environmentalist with more than 35 years of experience in the natural gas and oil industry. Coseta is the author of the books, of the books Just the Fracks, ma'am. When I heard that name, you know what I said. And Learned Leadership, a boys' high school soccer coach whose teams have won 16 regional and five state championships. This guy is an engineer. He's he's even engineering wins on the field. He understands the importance of teamwork and leadership. Greg, welcome to Politics Unright. How are you doing today? I'm excellent. How about you? I am doing great, Greg. Uh, Let me me tell you, uh, when when they asked me to talk to you, my first thing is like, don't you guys listen to my show? Why do you are, you, are you going to really bring Greg to my show? To which then, then I said, yeah, you must listen to my show because what I like to do is I like to hear all sides of a story. I like to hear everything. So first of all, 
the original context of the conversation is bringing manufacturing back to the United States, making sure that we build things. I also notice that you are uh, lead a group, a nonprofit that centralizes in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and what state am I missing? Ohio. And Ohio. Uh, you know, um, and these are states that are in dire straits right now. Manufacturing has left them. Manufacturing never was a part of West Virginia. West Virginia was always a for forgotten state. First of all, tell me what, what's your goal? Our goal is really simple. We want to bring, as a nonprofit, non-government, our role is to bring jobs, not just jobs, but high-wage, career-oriented jobs back to this region, the Rust Belt. And, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is petrochemicals, the first ethane cracker was 10 miles from where I sit today. I live outside of Charleston, West Virginia. So the whole chemical valley during the Cold War, we were on Russia's target list for because, but what happened when our energy went away, when OPEC suddenly in the 70s became the, the world's oil supplier, we saw the Gulf Coast, where you're located, begin to grow. And suddenly overseas labor was cheap. So we lost our, we lost our manufacturing. All my relatives, I grew up in Pittsburgh, worked over, and our family was in steel. Well, my all of a sudden, my whole family's unemployed because the steel mills went away. So we have this unique opportunity now because we have abundant energy. As a matter of fact, you may not know, your listeners may not know and viewers, that that region, Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, if it was a country, would be the number three natural gas producer in the entire world. Number three. The only places that produce more natural gas than Shell Crescent, West Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania is. Number one is the rest of the U.S. without us the Gulf Coast, offshore, Texas, Oklahoma, Alaska, number one, number two, Russia, number three, us. Can you imagine that? That little part of the United States produces twice as much natural gas as the entire nation of China. So that energy advantage, and to your point, it's not energy for burning stuff. What a lot, most people don't grasp is to make the shirt, the computers, everything we got, takes molecules, petrochemicals, and there's nothing wrong with renewables, but the only thing they make is electricity. They can't make a car. You got to have those molecules to do that. So we have this, we got the energy, we've got the workforce because we've been an old manufacturing area and we have the location because 70% of the people that use, that make things out of polyethylene, polypropylene are in our region. So right today, those polyethylene pellets are being made on the Gulf Coast and they're being shipped up to my part of the world. Can you imagine what that does for efficiency? Can you imagine what that does for carbon footprint? So we have this unique opportunity. I think what happened during the pandemic, I think we all got hit with the realization that we didn't realize how much stuff we were getting from overseas. And can you imagine, Things like PPE, face masks, uh, gowns, even uh, ventilators, medical equipment. We, we were depending on places like China for that. And well, I'll tell you what, when we're depending on other nations to protect our people, and even 80% of our prescription drugs aren't made here, it's time to bring it back. And we can talk about it more. We have the advantage. We can make it cheaper and more efficiently here in this country than anybody in the world. Now, um, when it comes to energy, you, you, you point out that uh, uh, one of the first steps we could take to reduce carbon footprint 
is to just start manufacturing here because the amount that we spent or rather the amount that we burn on transport the amount that we that 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 we burn to create all this the, the chaos within the market by not building things here have an actual footprint and that could be a start did i understand that right from your writings absolutely because if you think about what's going on today china who's obviously that's China and Asia, particularly China. I mean, you look at about any look around your office and your house, you'll find something, probably a lot of stuff made in China. China doesn't have their energy. I already talked about that. They're getting most of their feedstock, their energy from OPEC. A lot of it's coming from Iran or from Russia via pipeline. So that's a carbon footprint to move that those molecules from the Middle East to let's just say Beijing. Then they make a product, and it may play, it might be, who knows my shirt or a computer or whatever. And then where's it come? They got to ship it halfway around the world to the United States. That's a huge carbon footprint. Now today, what the opportunity that we have in this country is in my region. And even in, if you look at the Gulf coast, we have the energy right here in this country. We have more energy. We're the leading oil and gas producer in the world. So we got the energy, we got the feedstock and in our region, the, the feedstock and energy is literally under the plants. Can you imagine? It's right there. So that's almost zero carbon footprint, very minimal. And then when you make that product, you're making it uh, like, for instance, the pellets when Shell and PT tier two cracker is going to be built in the region. Those pellets are being made from American energy under the plant. They're being trucked to converters, people that make stuff right within a few hundred miles of those plants. And then where does that stuff go? It's going to Atlanta, Detroit, Chicago, New York City, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Baltimore, right there in the region. So can you imagine how small that carbon footprint is compared to what China is doing? And the beauty of it is, is we're creating these high wage jobs. And I'm, a, I'm also an adjunct professor at a community college. My students, Alberto, start at 60 grand a year. That's huge for someone right out of school. They're making, they're making minimum wage now and they're getting 60 grand a year. And what I love about it, I said, gentlemen, ladies, what are you going to buy with that stuff? What do you think the first thing they want to buy is? Uh, no, right. What, what, what's the first thing you think they want to buy? For, for, they're going to buy a car. They're going to buy a home. They're going to buy, they're going to buy a whole lot of stuff. You, you nailed it. Except in we're in West Virginia. So it's not a car. It's a pickup truck. <laughs> what is it? What is it? It's a pickup truck. Oh, a pickup yeah you're in West virginia okay yeah so they're so but that but that they're gonna you're right they're gonna buy stuff now the third one you nailed it car or actually pickup truck house and then since we're in west virginia they're gonna buy west virginia wv mountaineer football season tickets oh yeah yeah see what that does to the local economy so now you're not just talking about these young people with 60 or 70 or 80 thousand dollar year jobs what are they doing they're the, the people that sell that pickup truck the people make that pickup truck the people make that tv the flower shop on main street because now they can buy flowers for their spouse on valentine's day or maybe just friday just for the heck of it that's where how we grow our economy and create those manufacturing jobs create four other spin-off jobs of some sort and probably more than that when you take a look at the local economy the bread maker who's selling more bread the you know so all of that goes and the rest of, yeah so can you see where that's how and today, when we buy that stuff from China, if I get buy this pen from China and my masks and all the PPE I'm getting, who gets those jobs? They do. 
and we're not even getting any tax benefits of it. So these all these young people are paying taxes. They're paying state taxes, local taxes, federal taxes. What a way to grow our economy and really create those things. And you know, what's fascinating, this is something else that's really powerful. I was on radio with a lady in Chicago and we probably don't have the same political persuasion. That's okay. But when it comes to jobs and bringing them, bringing high wage jobs back, we're absolutely on the same page. And she said, she asked me this question. She's Greg, we've got all these vacant buildings in Chicago. What can we do? How can we bring manufacturing back to our, to Chicago? Because if we can put jobs in those, into those, into those vacant buildings, we can give our young people hope. And if we give our young people hope, we can end the gun violence in this city because now they have something to live for. They have a reason to stay off drugs, to, to stay out of a gang. We're giving them hope. And that's the stuff. And in my region, a big problem, we still have an opioid problem. My students don't have an opioid problem because they know in, in May, they'll, if, they, if they stay drug-free and graduate, they got that $60,000 a year job waiting for them. That's how we create hope. And that's how we begin to change really people's lives in a very positive way. So I'm really pumped up about that kind of Let stuff. Let me tell you, Greg, you need to run for something, um, you know, but I, I, want, I want to now challenge you in a particular area and, 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 and let, let's see how we get there. Um, we need that impetus. We need that, we need that passion for jobs into something that is sustainable. So I have a question for you. I meet you halfway. What I mean by that is um, as an engineer, both of us are engineers, so we can speak at at a particular level. I understand that, uh, you know, gradients, uh, bad things happen at large gradients. We know that whenever there are big changes, that's when bad things happen. So as a progressive activist, who really wants to get things done, I realize that we have to have on-ramps for changes. Uh, But the longer that we wait for on-ramps to changes, the steeper that on-ramp has to be. And that is where somebody like yourself comes in. You're an oil man. Let's put it bluntly. You have everything that you've just said is in the power of using oil to create great wages for the people that you are likely to represent, which is a damn good thing. You want those people employed. My question to you, however, is this. Knowing what we know about the environment, if you believe, uh, if, if, if you believe the science of what's going on in the environment right now, uh, wouldn't it be uh, apropos to make sure that as we build your crescent region, Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, that you make transitional for these people that yes you're sitting on a on a flotilla of of a of of a gas that can be used as a catalyst right now for building other things other than burning wouldn't it behoove you to create policies in that region that make them sustainable and not that when the crash when some crash comes with well, we really have to do something about energy now, that they are not in the same place again that all these Rust Belt places are in because some fast change occur and their, their, their business model was not sustainable. That's a, you know, I, I love that question. You're, you're, and that's a great question. I think what, it, I don't know, 
a century younger than I am. So do you remember the Bionic Man? No, I'm probably older than you are, but it's okay. But do you remember the the Bionic Man, Steve Austin? Of course, I remember that. It's the six million dollar man. Is what that's it, it. That's it. That's it. Right. Well, I remember how that show started. So do you? Is we can rebuild him. We can make it better. Right. And I have a vision, and and it's funny to your point is. It's taken a little while for people, even within our organization, Shell Crescent, because we're a nonprofit, but we're founded by community and business leaders. And we're not, our whole role is jobs. And if we can do it with renewables or whatever, it doesn't matter. Let me interrupt you a second. Let me interrupt you a second, because I went to your Crescent website, right? And your Crescent website, um, maybe I didn't look far enough. I didn't see, I, I, I didn't see a transitional kind of a thing that says we are going to make sure that I know you're a nonprofit and you're doing damn good work. That's not what I'm hitting at all. What I'm trying to figure out is in the process of building up that region, you're going to have a transition to say we're doing because we get into too many ideological battles that we shouldn't Absolutely. be into. Okay. You and I want the same thing for our kids, etc. So Absolutely. we should find the, uh, the 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 correct way to get us to a sustainable planet okay. that's not going to do the wrong thing. And Absolutely. and and, you're, and and when you made that comment about we can start by reducing transportation and we get two two bangs, we get more jobs here and we reduce a carbon print. I buy that. There's a third bang out of that that you go ahead. And this is what no. And, and here's the part that really concerns me because. You know, this whole if, if, if the people that talk about climate change are right, and if we've got a limited window, and you and I both as engineers grasp that mm-hmm. you got to do something. I mean, the time for talk, I've waited 30 years. I'm done with talk. It's time right. to act. And what nobody has come up with yet is what do we do about China? Our CO2 levels in this country have dropped. We just last year, they went down 2%, but we're down 14%. So we're lowering CO2. China is, they haven't even, they haven't, we're not talking about lowering theirs. They're still increasing. Now, doggone it, I'm smart enough, and you're both smart enough as engineers to know that if we're going to solve the global problem, we can't do it if China's still doing this. True. And here's how we fix that. And they're, China's not going to come willingly, I don't think. I mean, matter of fact, they're still open. I mean, it's boggling my mind. They're still opening new coal plants over there. So everything we do is being undone. Here's how we fix that. We start bringing that industry back from China. We start to force their hands. And that's how we do that. Ford wants to be carbon neutral. If I had this, if you were the CEO of Ford, I'd look you in the eye right now. And I'd say, here's how you fix that. Shut that plant down in Beijing and bring it over to, bring it to Houston, bring it to Parkersburg, West Virginia, or Cambridge, Ohio, or Pittsburgh, PA. That's how you do it. And instead of bringing that oil to Beijing and then sending those car parts here, you bring that plant here or begin to transition, begin to make less. If you're going to ship it to the United States, make that product here. Make what you want to in Beijing and ship it to China and India. That's how we start. Nobody, I have not heard anything that's got anything at all to do with how do you deal with China. Here's one way we fix China. We start sending them our natural gas so they can maybe not not build any more coal plants. I don't know, but we got to deal with that. And nobody, that's not on anybody's radar screen. And you and I both know if we got a, a 401k, the part of my 401k that may be growing 
if it's being undone by the rest of it that's losing money, I got to change that. And yeah, even, uh, if we don't change China. We're in deep, deep. I think we, this this has to be something that we. It's not only China. It's also India. It's all the developing right. countries. Okay, exactly. And and I want to make a, a what I want to make a moral a moral thing here, and that is we as the United States, we are as the wealthiest country in the world. We did that by throwing a whole lot of carbon into the air. That's what we did, and so did uh, so did the UK, etc. So um, we have to pay a bigger cost, in my humble opinion, when it comes to f- not forcing but negotiating with others to stop throwing carbon into the air, because they could say, "Well, you threw X amount of carbon in the air over the years to become rich. We may need to do the same," and we have to find some moral answer to that to that reality of enriching, you know, enriching one's country. So that is something to be negotiated. But you're absolutely right that if we are the only ones cutting, uh, just one of the reasons for regulations is that you want everybody to be playing on the same field, on on, on an even field. In other words, if we don't have regulations in certain places, you could, you could get a competitive advantage by Uh, by not being a good steward, and I get a competitive disadvantage by being a good steward. So we have to have a level playing field in order to execute those things. It's not, it can't be a winner take all or anything like that, which is what I... And I think you're talking about what what I love about that is that's my coach coming out now. Mm -hmm. Because to me, doesn't matter who on our team, doesn't matter who scores the winning goal, as long as we win. And to that point, I think what we really need is getting enough leadership out there that to put the planet on the same page, what, what are we going to do together to fix this problem? And I, and, and there's, I, you know, I don't know, I guess what I would challenge even government to do is don't assume that the answers that we're thinking about now are the right answers. If you put the right people together, there's better answers out there. We just don't know what they are because I guarantee it. If you and I sat down and talked for a while, we'd come up with a better solution than some oh, of the other stuff that's look, going on. That that is definite. Look, let, let me tell you, and it's not only that. It, it also the perfect answer is not always an answer that you can work on, that you can work with. In other words, and that is as as an as an environmentalist, and I think you claim yourself an environmentalist Absolutely. as well. But as an environmentalist, as a and a, as an engineer. As a progressive, I have certain values. As I, I assume, given that you're an oil man, I assume that you are a conservative guy. I assume all these things. But we live in the same country. We can have a cup of coffee. We can drink and we can do all of those things together and figure out, well, what can we do that continues life on Earth in the long run? Sure, and it doesn't have all, to be a we're all dead, line. it doesn't matter. Right. So... So my thing is, and one of the reasons I like to challenge and talk to people like yourself is that you have the respect in that community. And if, if, if having that respect in that community, if you can actually show, well, you know, after speaking to a few progressives, maybe we need to sort of meet as opposed to us having these, because some, some of the people with me talking to somebody like yourself, some of, of the folks that I deal with would be like, are you crazy? They are the anti this and the anti. And my thing is, no, they're my fellow brother. Okay. And somehow we have to figure out how a leader in your field, leader in what you're doing and your values can somehow come to a resolution that, look, we know we have a problem. 
there are also financial areas, there are logical areas, there are work areas, there are all these areas that have to be satisfied at once. How do we do that? And I think, and I think by first having the conversation, we can do that. Uh, you're sitting on a, on, on a you're, you know, the easiest thing to, to think is that because you're singing, sitting on an ocean of gas is that it has to be used. Uh, that I'm sitting on an ocean of something that it has to be used. How do we, how do we tell all those landowners in the Crescent area that uh, you don't have to, you don't have to do that, but we're going to have the necessary programs that it's not a burden for you not to have done that. And that is where nonprofits like Crescent and all of that with the proper modal, in my opinion, can actually start laying the groundwork for the people who trust you. I think there's and it's, there's a, a lot of good opportunities to that because we can't solve a problem if we're, sh- if we're shouting at each other. Right. And I think what what the challenge is, and I think we're starting to see that the coal people are finally starting to figure this stuff out, is it's not always about burning something. Now, the one challenge that I have a real uh, concern with a lot of the Green New Deal folks is they don't seem to grasp that you got to have molecules and, you know, we can go wind and solar wherever we can use it. And I'm fine. Matter of fact, I'll tell you what I'd like to see if we're going to do offshore wind, fine. Make the windmills in Cambridge, Ohio or Charleston, West Virginia and ship them to the East coast. Short problem. I'd rather make solar panels in my backyard here in Charleston than have them shipped from Beijing. Mm-hmm. that's the stuff now to make those solar panels we got to have molecules and the molecules we have in our country in abundance so i think that's the difference but but i got i get for it because i know we're, I, I don't want to lose get this out there before we lose time is we're already working on recycling i i've got i've got two companies one from israel that i'm really excited about and our goal my goal and our region's goal is to create this circular economy in other words Instead of, and I love the Israeli, what we call garbage, they call feedstock. And what they're going to do is set up near our landfills. And as these trash trucks come in, they have to separate the glass and the metals. The rest of the stuff, the hot dog wrappers, the the waste salad, they use all that stuff and they turn that into a pellet that'll make a product. And that's the stuff. When we start turning, instead of burying this stuff in the ground, now what we've got, to your point, we're not using, now we're not using even that natural gas resource. We're not using as much of that because we're using that trash and we're turning that into a product. And I'm loving what they're doing because that's the whole concept is we're creating this circular economy instead of plastic. We got to have plastic. We got to have it for face shields and medical equipment about everything we use my wife wouldn't be alive without plastics right now we're using them circularly what an opportunity greg out of this conversation that this is the the type of conversation i think we should have this is the type of conversation i think we need to have a lot of expand it a bit more and then come to a few better points but as i always ask my guests what would you have liked me to ask you that i didn't wow good question because I think we've covered a ton of stuff. I think the, the, the main thing that I think what I'd like to see is how do we get everybody on that same page? How do we start this? How do we, because 
what I, when we did a ton of radio last year because of the pandemic, we, we couldn't go places, but we'd end up doing a lot of media. And what I've seen, and, and matter of fact, to give everybody out there hope is it didn't matter whether it was red state, blue state, liberal, conservative, urban, rural, everybody, I had guests call in last year, everybody that I talked to, no matter where, downtown Chicago, San Francisco, you name it, wants to see manufacturing and jobs come here. And that's something we can build on. And I think that's, that's how we start. And I think even the president wants to see, he, he, he gets the, the idea that if we got to depend on China for ventilators, and if we got to depend on China for our personal protective equipment, that's not good. So we need to be making more of these products here and we can do it because we have advanced manufacturing, we've got a great labor source, we have feedstock, and we, we are right here where the big market is and where the people need that stuff. So that's, you know, maybe that's the, the thought process is how do we begin? And we begin by starting to make what we know we have to make here. Greg Cosetta, it's been my pleasure to have you on Politics Done Right. We must keep the conversation going. Thank you for what you're doing. And thank you for what I know you're going to do in the future. Well, appreciate it. Anytime, anything we can do to help, to get you information, to do whatever, because this is all of our country. This is all of our world. And, you know, it's not just about you and I. I got kids. I got grandkids. And I got, a, and I got friends around the world. Thank you, my friend. We got to take care of everybody. Absolutely. You have a wonderful day. Thank you. Appreciate what you do. We have another special guest for you, and he is going to be kind of intriguing. Steve Mel Melink is the four books author of Fusion Capitalism, a clean energy vision of conservatives and founder, CEO and CEO of Melink Corporation, a Cincinnati, Ohio based company considered a pioneer in renewable energy solutions for the commercial building industry. Melink's company has worked with retail, restaurants, hotels, chains, hospitals, nursing homes, universities and supermarkets. Melink is a national speaker on sustainability clean energy, and zero energy buildings, and he has consulted with federal and state legislators. He earned a BS in mechanical engineer. That is truly my profession. I am a mechanical engineer as well from Vanderbilt University and an MBA from Duke University. Welcome to Politics Done Right. Steve Melling, how are you doing today? Good morning, Nigberto. I'm doing great. Thank you. Well, look, uh, first of all, um, the, this is going to be the first strange question. Where the hell did you come from? <laughs> <laughs> Where did I come from? Well, um, I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, and, uh, you know, I built a business there. We're, we're a national company. We do work nationwide. We uh, have technicians uh, and employees across the country. And, um, you know, we've grown from a kind of an HVAC type company to a clean energy company over the years. And I, you know, I'm, um, I know that uh, clean energy, solar, wind, et cetera, it's the way of the future. Um, and that climate change is real. The science is, um, is real. And, and um, you know, we can't afford to take the risk of not addressing the problem, but the good news is the technologies are, for the most part, here and now, and 
uh, many people and companies are taking advantage of them and we have a bright future to look forward to. Now explain what is HVAC first of all, because you you know remember we we our all our audience aren't engineers, so uh... sure, yeah. So I got started in HVAC is an acronym for heating, ventilation, air conditioning, and my background uh, is in heating and cooling. I worked for the train company and Emerson and other similar type companies, uh, and um, I started my own company to basically test and air balance and commission these these systems for um, national chains. So we do work for Walmart, Target, McDonald's, Starbucks, and many other chains across the country. But but that led to the development of energy saving controls uh, and then ultimately to us getting into the solar uh, power space and geothermal heating and cooling. Now, you said, clearly, I am no revolutionary, but I'm going to let you in on a secret. I love driving my all-electric Tesla down Miami, Miami Avenue and showcasing the future. I mean, hence my first question. Where the hell did you come from? You wrote a book called, <laughs> I mean, Capitalism, a clean energy vision for conservatives. And then you come out with stuff like this. I mean... I am. Imp- let me let me just tell you, I'm impressed because um, that is a sentiment that needs to get out there. Tell me a little bit more about your electric car and how you got into that model. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been driving an electric car since 2010. Uh, I was driving a Chevy Volt for, um, you know, over seven years and then finally was uh, able to upgrade to a Tesla Model X. But for those of you who have never driven an electric car, you don't know what you're missing. I mean, they are so cool. You know, they they accelerate faster. They're so much quieter. There's so much less maintenance involved. You don't have to worry about changing the oil and uh, the radiator fluid and spark plugs and things like that. It's it's a it's a um, it's a um, it's a computer on wheels, uh, and it's so comfortable and. Um, you know, the, another great thing is, you know, we don't have to burn gasoline to uh, get from place to place. Uh, I power my electric car with solar power. So um, I'm virtually driving around on, you know, solar power rather than on, on um, fossil fuels. You know, you said clean energy technologies are not some passing fad. They're quickly becoming mainstream. But then you say... I have to admit, it's confusing and even frustrating that the conservative brand that I grew up and identified with for most of my life is dismissing much of the damage that coal, oil, and natural gas are doing to our health and environment. That's a prescient statement. Let me, let, before, before I ask you to answer, um, in that one paragraph you stated a few things that many don't talk about Uh, people just talk about coal and gas and oil as far as employment as far as oil both of us are engineers we know that fossil fuels store a big bang of energy per volume we understand that Uh, but the other thing is that um, we don't always talk externalities i live in texas we have pasadena known as cancer alley we know that the price of gas does not include the price of externalities and all those kinds of things and when somebody like myself expresses those those state those those things 
it is taken as well. That's a progressive talking and uh, it doesn't really make a lot of, you know, it, it's something we don't look at. But when a Steve Melling says that as a bona fide conservative, it has a lot of bang. So the real question I want to ask you is, why aren't you seeing more of your face out there as a conservative uh, aiding this particular movement? I think um, conservatives will have no choice but to rally around uh, the solution, even though they may not understand the problem of climate change, more and more they're rallying around the solution of clean energy. I mean, you see it in your home state of Texas. Uh, there's more jobs in clean energy than there is in fossil fuels. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I grew up, uh, you know, a good old Catholic, you um, know, large family, and there was nothing in my background that suggested I had to be about drilling for oil and mining for coal and burning fossil fuels to pollute the air and um, create this greenhouse effect. So, you know, it's only been in the last 20 years or so that this narrative has been cast. And who has it been cast by? By the fossil fuel industry. Exactly. And they in turn have influenced and brainwashed so many politicians on this. You know, they've been, they're getting, you know, campaign contributions from this rich and powerful fossil fuel industry. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm calling it out. Um, I don't, I don't believe at all that this, um, you know, that um, conservatism is about fossil fuels. You know, uh, again, I'm an engineer. I, I, I'm a lover of technology and the technologies that are coming um, downstream to us are as great as they were in the 20th century. You know, you know, think of all the, um, the great technologies that came to us in the, in the past century from, uh, automotive to aviation to space exploration to computer and internet technologies we have the same opportunity in the 21st century and it's going to be you know to a large degree um, related to moving to a clean energy economy and it's going to be a lot of change and people in texas um i mean it's it's an energy rich state you're probably the, you know considered the energy capital of the country but um you know, the, the good news is that over the next 10 to 20 years, there's going to be many times more jobs in clean energy than there ever was in fossil fuels. You know, um, uh, Steve, interestingly, when you talk about Texas being the energy capital of the world, it's not only the energy capital of the, or of the, of, of the country in, in uh, fossil fuels. It's also becoming sort of the capital in renewables. We just don't talk about it. The amount of wind power that we have in Texas is huge, but we don't want to talk about it too much because, again, we are trying to conflate ideology and technology. And what I love about what you're doing is that you've, uh, I mean, you've, you know it, you isolate your personal conservatism from what needs to be done for, I call it humanity, you know, what we sure. need to do. And I love the chapter where you have uh, the problem is fossil fuels and there are four subchapters. And, you know, I, I, I've written about all of this sort of stuff and it's it just amazing to see it all in one place. We pay it with our health, numero uno. Numero dos, we pay it with hidden taxes, numero tres. We pay it for the dictatorships and terrorism. Amazing. People don't get that. And we pay it because of greed and corruption. All those things are endemic within the production of oil. Egberto, you... You know, Egberto, you were talking about externalities, and, and, and that's kind of a, maybe a difficult term for some people to grasp, but 
you know, I, I think uh, and a good example of that would be, I can't put my garbage into your front lawn. If I did, I'd be fined. And so, you know, I think the, the, the analogy is apt that why should um, other people and companies be allowed to put their garbage in our air and affect our health and the, the future of our planet without paying a fine? And that's why I'm an advocate for what is called a, a price on carbon right. so that they pay their fair share for the stuff that they're putting in the air. You know, I mean, that is you scare me. And let me explain something to you here. And let me tell you why. Uh, we have the United States and we have Great Britain during the industrial era. Of course, it started Great Britain threw a whole lot of stuff up into the air. The United States built its wealth on supplying products to the world by throwing all this stuff into the air. And what we have a lot of conservatives saying right now is, well, the reason we don't want to do it right now is because there's India and there's China have a way more population than us. And they're throwing all this stuff into the air to which somebody like myself, this great old progressive says, but wait a minute, we built our wealth by polluting the air of everybody else. Should we really feel like we are doing something wrong if we are aiding those countries that we want to get green as well to save us all? We, we, we threw our stuff in the air to build what we've got. Shouldn't they have the right? And if we don't want them to have the right, pay them not to? Your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, for the last almost century, we've been buying oil from the Middle East. Now, Texas is energy rich. And, mm -hmm. uh, you, know, you know, in recent years, that's not as much the case. But, you know, to a large degree, the world depends on places like the Middle East and these far-flung places where extracting oil and other um, and natural gas is a very costly proposition. So, um, you know, why aren't we becoming the Middle East of uh, of, of building and selling wind turbines and solar panels and these clean energy technologies, the future. Um, you know, right now, for the most part, the, the, the solar panels are being built in uh, China and other countries in, um, um, in Asia. And so we're missing out on the opportunity. So, um, you know, I, I think, again, I think, you know, I don't know that I'll ever be able to change everyone's minds on the problem of climate change, but I think more and more people are willing to recognize the opportunity of clean energy and they just move on beyond the problem. And okay, this is a huge economic opportunity. And, you know, in addition to that is all the other problems that you were talking about being able to solve, such as improving our health, improving our uh, national security, um, not propping up the price of oil so that terrorists can, um, you know, sell it, enrich themselves, and foment their um, their evil ways. So, um, you know, I, I call that the clean energy revolution is the greatest opportunity of the 21st century. The amount of transition that will be required over the next 10 to 30 years will be um, amazing. But again, for those that are willing to embrace change rather than have a revulsion against it, um, we'll have the most to gain from it. You know, that is, I appreciate it. Now, there, there is something that, um, that is, you know, I, I talk about clean energy on the show a whole lot. And there's something that my, cons I have a lot of conservative listeners as well, both conservatives and progressives. And one of the things that they always bring up is that, well, you know, the problem is that at night, the sun doesn't shine 
and the wind doesn't blow all the time. So, I mean, we always have to have that uh, other energy to which I say, yeah, we need a back in store. But let's remember that a dam holding back water is a back in store. Let's remember that basic old batteries are back in stores. Let's remember that right now, oil is a back in store of solar energy. So um, all we have to do is, you know, uh, we, can, we, can, we can actually save this stuff just like we save water, just like we save energy in other forms for when the production mode is not there. Your thoughts on that? Absolutely. You know, uh, battery technologies are improving every day and becoming ever more cost effective. That's why we see more and more electric cars today that are using these battery batteries. And we're seeing it even more at the grid level. And so, um, you know, in the next five to 10 years, more and more utilities are going to be installing these, uh, these utility scale battery storage systems to serve as a base load so that when the wind isn't blowing, the sun isn't shining, they can still power homes and buildings at night. Um, so, yeah, you know, with the events of last week, you know, I'm sorry that so many people suffered and, and it's easy for people to, to run to the extremes and point fingers and there's a, enough blame to go around, you know, uh, uh, you know, um, and, and, and certainly, um, you know, there were problems with the wind turbines not being able to operate because they weren't winterized. Right. You know, wind turbines are being used in the uh, in far Antarctica. North, in Antarctica and in the northern plains of the U.S. And they're doing fine because they were winterized. And so, you know, the same problem exists with the coal and the nuclear and the natural gas plants. Um, you know, in the short term, I think what we've learned is we need to winterize all electric um, generation plants so that if this happens again next year or, you know, whenever that we'll be ready for it. But beyond that, you know, I think, you know, something to consider would be, you know, right now the Texas grid is an island to itself and it's not integrated with the other two large regional grids that the United States has. And it would behoove, I think, the United States, the state of Texas to integrate our grids into one large smart uh, national grid, but then uh, above and beyond that, have these mini grids and eventually millions of microgrids. And what are these microgrids? They're individual homes and businesses and schools and and even cars, for example, uh, that can operate in the event of a, a severe weather event or a um, natural disaster or a terrorist attack or you know, some future war that imagine now, but you, you've probably heard about the cyber attack the Russians made yes. on our uh, infrastructure. And so there's, there's little doubt in my mind that they've penetrated, you know, as far as into our, our many of our utility um, uh, power stations. And so, um, you know, I'm, they wouldn't want to start something, obviously, but if they, you know, they've got the capability, probably, and if they don't, well, the Iranians do or will, or the Koreans, North Koreans will, or, um, or you know, it could be the Chinese. So we need to be thinking about a future grid that is far more resilient and that no one event can take out a large swath of our grid. And the only way to do that is to get away from this idea that we wanna have large central power plants. Instead, let's have millions of mini and micro power plants. And it, then it's you know, more like the internet that you know you can't take down by attacking one um, 
you know, server. Um, Steve, that is magic. That is magic. That the microgrid concept is magic. We've spoken about that when we talk about having each home themselves with power. Sometimes you're not using your excess, it goes onto the grid. I mean, all of that is possible with the technology we have today. And it is, as you said, resilient. Now, look, this is a political show. So I'm going to ask you one political question. And uh, then, I'm, then after that, I have one more, but it goes this way. You're an engineer. Uh, you claim that you're a conservative. Um, what makes you a conservative when uh, you show such enlightenment on so many aspects <laughs> of technology and otherwise? What, what, what is what, it? Yeah, what, what makes me conservative? So, so, you know, things that I think are important, I do believe in, um, you know, I, personally, I'm pro-life. Mm-hmm. I, I believe in a strong national defense. I believe in uh, fiscal... Uh, responsibility. Those are um, values that, you know, I, I, I try to uh, abide by in my home, uh, my family, in my business. Um, and so, but that doesn't mean that I'm held hostage to all the other ideas that one party has or the other. You know, I have often said that, you know, some people let politics get in the way of their own cognitive abilities and their own sense of right and wrong. And so, um, you know, rather than two parties, we should probably have at least a third and and many others uh, because no one party represents 100% of what I believe. And and that's probably true for most people. And they feel kind of in the middle, kind of caught, you know, between the extremes of of both. You know, um, I love your answer, first of all. Because ironically, by your definition, I'm a conservative as well. But, um, but I, you know, I mean, yeah. really, when you said you like fiscal responsibility, I like fiscal responsibility. When you say you, you're pro-life, I'm pro-life. I just don't believe in telling somebody else what to do. When you talk, I mean, all, it, it's amazing when, and yeah. I tell people this all the time, when you look at what people want, what most people want, what you find is it's pretty damn much the same. Mm-hmm. There are, you know, some people would say, but they, and I, I would say, well, we have those on top that needs to have us fighting each other. But anyhow, um, Steve Melink, what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? Okay, so um, for all the listeners, they might be thinking, okay, the problem of what happened last week is too big for me to do anything about it. Um, but what can I as an individual do to ensure I don't um, you know, I'm not a victim of this uh, in the future kind of a thing. So my answer would be that, you know, uh, I want to empower everybody as consumers to be um, smart, savvy consumers and not be hapless victims of what um, industries tell us we have to buy, for example, that we have to buy fossil fuel power kind of a thing. So let's be smart and say, well, I think climate change is a problem. At the very least, it's a risk that's not worth taking any further than what we're seeing early signs of right now. So how can we mitigate this problem? Well, by reducing our carbon footprint, by burning less or by uh, buying less power that, uh, or no power that comes from um, core natural gas. So Not everyone can afford solar panels on their home or putting in a battery storage system or buying an electric car. 
But what you know, many people can't afford is um, in the, if they go to their utility, they can click on the box that says green power option. And if thousands and eventually millions of people click on the green power option, suddenly the utilities would have to uh, install or buy from more clean energy farms. And it would create such demand in the marketplace for clean energy that it would help create this revolution and uh, accelerate it. And it would be great for the United States. And um, you know, the problem, the, the program's probably not long enough to explain how um, you know, clean energy and battery storage can be made, make us more resilient than, you know, the, the systems that we have today that caused the problems in Texas that we had last week. But, you know, talk to Elon Musk and other very smart people who have this vision for the future, and they're not at all saying, oh, we need more coal plants or we need more natural gas. So technology is a wonderful thing. It's coming down the pike. Everything's not perfect right now. But over time, we're, over the next 5, 10, 20 years, we're going to get there. Uh, Steve, your book does a good job at explaining that as for everybody to get it. Steve Melink, founder and CEO of Melink Corporation and author of the book, Fusion Capitalism, A Clean Energy Vision for Conservatives. It was my pleasure to have you on Politics Done Right. Thank you so kindly for having been so. here. Yes, thank you very much for having me on your program. Take care. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, folks, please remember to go to kpft.org and hit that donate button to support KPFT. We need that. We need to keep on air. Do you want to listen to Politics Unright on a daily basis? We have a fresh program for you every single day. Politicsunright.com, politicsunright.com slash YouTube. Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right.